So all these events that are happening in this current time have the potential to essentially destroy uh, civilization. <laughs> Welcome back to Mind Matters. It's just me and Adam today. I'm Harrison Cayley. And I want to talk about a few things. Well, first I'll tell you some of the things that I've been listening to recently. I listened to both an episode, these are older episodes, an older episode of Tim Pool's podcast and an episode of the book club that Unsafe Spaces does. And both of these shows talked about the the book, The Fourth Turning, by William Strauss, or Neil Strauss, and uh, some other guy. can't remember. How? How and Strauss, maybe? Yeah. And so they were pretty good discussions. I liked both of them. Um, and I'd been familiar with Fourth Turning and the so-called like generational theory or generations theory. For a couple of years, I wrote a few articles about it back in 2016, I think. 17. 2017. And one of the things that uh, they they were trying to figure out on both these podcasts is how to figure out these cycles of history that these guys are talking about and if they're valid or not and what that means for either predictions or for just looking at what's happened since the book was written. Because the book, they wrote the fourth turning in like around 97 or something like that, mid-90s. And just to give a brief overview of what the theory is, I'm pretty sure we talked about it on a previous show, but uh, just to give another background, the idea of this theory is that it's a cyclical theory of history and of time so that certain patterns tend to repeat themselves and they repeat roughly on a 90 year cycle. Um, it's not, it's not strictly limited to 90 years. It's basically the time that it takes for four generations to, to pass and four generations is the length of a, a long life. So essentially, if you live till you're 80 or 90, you've got great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and children. And so <clears throat> the interactions between these four generations, according to these guys, tend to result in repeatable patterns so that every every fifth generation is like a, a repeat of the of the fifth before it so there are certain like archetypes or trends and this actually led to some of the criticisms against this theory that it's kind of like kind of like astrology because um you can kind of just find whatever you need and force fit it and there may be something to that criticism but at the same time it it does seem like a a nice uh a nice model in which to to view things because if you look at this then if you look at it at it in kind of like the English-speaking world history for the past couple hundred years, you have major catastrophes happening right when they say they would, or what, when you would predict based on the theory. So you have the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War II, and then these days, you know? So according to this theory, the times we're living in now is the crisis period. And the crisis period is one of the four periods because not only is it not only is it the interaction of these four generations but the 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 interaction of these four generations and the where they are in their um like significance for each specific time period for example if you if we just label the the generations 1 2 3 and 4 if you have a if you're living in the time when the generation 2 are the like adults um doing things that'll have a different flavor than if it's a uh, number one or number four. And so the, the trend is that you seem to have these periods of crisis. These might be periods of war or revolution or um, the fall of civilizations or things just either fall apart, something bad happens. And it's usually a big, a big crisis. It's not just a minor crisis. A crisis period is followed by a period in which society is essentially rebuilt. And so this is a constructive period. After this constructive period comes like this almost like consciousness revolution period. And then that's followed by a period of stagnation, which slides into another period of crisis. And this just repeats and repeats. 
So one of the ideas in this generational theory is that they're not saying that wars and revolutions and things like this only ever happen in the fourth turning. They're saying that the the climate of that time means that the the crisis will hit in such a way and people will react in such a way that it makes it a giant crisis. So a war can break out in um, in any of the other periods, but it won't necessarily have the same effects that it would have if it happened in the fourth turning. And at the same time, you can have a spark, um, what they call a spark, like a major or a potentially major event that might happen in any of these other turnings, any of these other parts of the cycle, that might just go off like a damp squib, but when it happens in the crisis period, then um, things kind of, the reaction based on the the, the, the people living in that time and the, the kind of climate of that time, turn that into a crisis. So something that, um, well, I'll get into an example that I talked about in the articles that I wrote, which was 9-11. Because the thing about the crisis is that, well, I'll back up a bit. So like I said, the current times that we live in, that we live in, according to Strauss and Howe, are um, the fourth turning. So this is the crisis period. And according to them, it starts, or it's it should have started um, in the mid to late 2000s. So like around 2008, and it'll go till just before like 2030, about 22 years, something like that, 20 to 22 years. So the things that, the sparks that happen in that period will tend to produce an overblown reaction and with the potential to essentially destroy a civilization, which will then get rebuilt in some form in the generation afterwards. So this would be like in the 30s and the 40s, the 2030s and the 2040s. So one of the things that they were, that I'm pretty sure they brought up in both of these on both of these shows, yeah, so on Tim Pool's show and on the Unsafe Spaces podcast, they were talking about what these crises, how these crises kind of fit into the theory and and whether Strauss and Howe's predictions kind of came true. Because there is one paragraph in, well, it's not just one paragraph, but one paragraph's worth of material in one of the last chapters of the book where they give their predictions for what's going to happen. And they talk about... Um, like terrorism using airplanes and uh, financial crises and collapse, crises and collapses, and a, a bunch of other things that kind of seem to fit. But they also talk about a bunch of stuff that that never happened. And that's so one of the criticisms on the Unsafe Spaces podcast was that that it's kind of like a dartboard. You know, they're making a lot of predictions and not a lot of them fit. But I don't. I think that kind of misses the point of the book because. I think they even make it clear in the book that the, it's not the specific predictions that are important. It's that it's something like this. Something like this will happen. It, it's these types of things which could produce giant catastrophes, essentially. And so on Tim Pool's podcast, they were c- kind of debating what the what the crisis point was, whether whether it was nine eleven or the financial collapse in two thousand eight, the financial crisis. And in my articles. I'd written that, from my perspective, it seems like 9-11, if it would have happened in 2008, or in any of the years since 2008, would have had a much bigger impact than it did. Of course, it did have a huge impact um, when you when you look at the wars that got started that are still going on, and the changes to even to the, 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 the structure and... and infrastructure of the United States government and not just the United, the U S government, but kind of the entire, uh, the U S and its allies and the, the things that have happened since then, that is a big change, but it didn't radically reorient society and we haven't following it. There wasn't a, a massive rebuilding and restructuring of society. There was, you know, there were new institutions like Homeland security and things like that, but there wasn't a massive reconstruction. What do I mean by massive reconstruction? Well, if we look at how these cycles, if they, you know, exist in the way they do played out, you can look at something like the history of, well, the history of Russia in the 20th century. You had the crisis, what what I think, if, if I, they don't talk about, they only talk about the Western world in fourth turning, but if you, if you take the, 
the framework and overlay it on Russian history, it actually matches up quite well. You have the revolutionary period in the early part of the 20th century in Russia, followed by World War II and the, the Russian Revolution, which completely destroyed the pre-existing Russian society and social structure. Completely destroyed it. And then it was rebuilt in the 20s and 30s by Lenin and Stalin to create the new order, the new, um, the new structure of Russian society, the USSR. So kind of completely redressed the, the Russian empire in new clothes. That new, those new clothes were well dominant, dominated by the Marxism and Leninism and Stalinism. And then following that restructuring in the, like I said, the, well, depending on how you break it up, let's say that was the thirties and forties. Then in the fifties, you have Stalin dies, Khrushchev comes into power and you have the Khrushchev thaw. You have, um, this would be the equivalent of like the, the consciousness revolution of the, of the the sixties and seventies in the U S or yeah, sixties and seventies. And then following the thaw, you have the Brezhnev stagnation. Again, this kind of just matches up with fourth turning theory. And then following stagnation, you have a crisis period, this kind of watershed moment moment. And what happens at the end of the nineties, you have the breakup of the Soviet union. You have communism following, you have a revolution from above and a huge crisis in the nineties where again, Russia gets torn apart and, um, a lot of bad stuff happens and then following the crisis you have a rebuilding and that rebuilding has, has argue, arguably happened in the last and been happening in the last 20 years where Russia has kind of reestablished itself as a as a major power to a to a large degree certainly um, Russia now is in many ways almost inc incomparable with what it was in the 90s so you seem to you seem to see that playing out and if that's true, that would mean that Russia and the Western world are on different cycles. The cycles aren't synchronized because Russia is still kind of in their, um, in their restructuring phase and the, the Western world is in its um, crisis phase. So where to go from there? Do you have anything well, to say? Well, just as, um, as a, as an, as a theory, as a possible idea of what's going on. I mean, it, it seems to have some, uh, some power to it. There's, mm -hmm. there's something to it that's real because like you're, like you've just been doing, you've been laying it out where we have ex specific examples where it does seem to map pretty closely. You know what? Nothing is exact to the year, mm -hmm. but the overall trend for specific decades, does match the theory mm -hmm. so we can use that as a heuristic going forward you know taking aside what you know as you had said before where there's specific examples you know those may not be what actually happens mm -hmm. because i mean those specific examples come from a specific time and a place and a specific trajectory where they see things going but the nature of the future is that it's not happening yet mm -hmm. so you can only Take a best guess, you know, based on where you are now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I forgive them their uh, faulty predictions because, you know, we're all trying to predict the future and oftentimes we go very, very, you know, wrong mm -hmm. in our predictions. So, you know, no fault on, to them on that. Um, but again, it's that there does seem to be something to it and it's a bit of a meme at this point uh where there is the well there is a specific meme that i'm thinking about where it's like good times create uh weak men weak men create bad times or and then uh yeah there's a third one bad that times create good men and good yes. men create good times so it's that yeah. there's there's the four pieces yeah. of that puzzle so i mean like that totally makes sense from a the uh, theoretical perspective mm -hmm. um this just gives it an actual like time frame so yeah. it's like ah okay like i can i can totally see that mm -hmm. uh and then beyond the theoretical level uh if we want to get into james Lindsay's article yeah. on the woke revolution well he breaks that down into 
specific examples of how the woke revolution has been going on within uh, America most specifically. Um, but it does have this the same kind of delineated periods uh, for decades where uh, uh, you have specific infiltrations and specific introductions uh, and situations, crises, uh, events that shape the, the decade or, or two mm -hmm. and builds upon itself to, I guess, in its own way, create uh, a fourth turning of its own. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I liked about Lindsay's article. Uh, we'll include a link to it in the show description because... <clears throat> He doesn't use these. He doesn't use these words, but the way I see what he's laid out in this article, he lo he looks at these important kind of turning points in the last, uh, well, since two thousand eight, and then and trends before then, like trends before then in critical pedagogy and the 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 rise of kind of woke critical theories in education and in the in academia, and then those trends how they've how the, how how they've provided the the background and the kind of substructure for these events that have played out since 2008. And so the events he, that play out are, of course, well, maybe not, some of them may, maybe, not, maybe aren't that obvious, but the election of Barack Obama c coinciding with the financial crisis, and then the shootings of, um, um, was it Trayvon Martin and Trayvon Michael Martin. Brown yeah. in 2013 and 2014? Yeah, 2013 was Trayvon Martin, and then August 2014 was Michael Brown, which led to the creation of Black Lives Matter, and which is very significant today. And then following that, the election of Donald Trump, 2015, then the entire presidency of Donald Trump, 2016 to 2020. And uh, was there one more, or was that it? Oh, and then, of course, the, the big one during um, Trump's presidency was the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at all of these events and then the reaction to these events, the thing that strikes me the most um, about, well, it seems to be getting more intense as, as you go, go along chronologically, is that the reaction to them seems, um, I wouldn't say complete, well, to a, exaggerated to a, a very great degree. If these would have happened 20 years ago, there wouldn't have been the same reaction to them. If you just look at the the election of Donald Trump, and as Lindsay points out, the emergence of Trump derangement syndrome, the, the reaction to Trump has been more extreme than anything Trump was actually than anything Trump actually did. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's the that's the way I see it. I, I don't think I don't I don't know how you can. Well, I know how you can look at <laughs> at uh, Trump's presidency and then come away with the reactions that have come out of it, yeah. but they are objectively exaggerated, to say the very least, to understate the matter. It has been complete hysteria to something that really doesn't necessitate that kind of reaction. And the same thing, um, same thing with George Floyd. If you look at the the people, almost um, um, he has he is a martyr. I mean, was it just was it Pelosi that just recently, you know, thanked him for his, the sacrifice of his life, and the, that he sacrificed his life for for like for civil rights and for human rights and, or something something like that? But um, and the 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 graffiti of Saint George, you know, Saint mm -hmm. George Floyd with the halo, and um, like when it's one of those things that you shouldn't have to point out um, because it should be obvious that of course it was. A tragedy in its own sense that he died on that day in the circumstances that he did and but to sanctify um like a person like george floyd it doesn't seem to to match the situation um it's not like he was uh like martin luther king yeah he wasn't martin luther king he wasn't going out and actively like doing something to 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 be a symbol, he wasn't trying to be a symbol. Like right. that's the thing. It, it's he just happened to die on a particular day in a particular circumstance, that then got co-opted uh, for other means and purposes. Uh, and like you say, like all of these little things um, are just completely out of proportion. Uh, one thing that sticks out of my mind is uh, just the 
and James Lindsay talks about it in his article, article where the, uh, the election of Donald Trump is seen as the rise of racism in America, mm -hmm. which doesn't like make sense to me at all because you're, you're coming from eight years of Obama. He got elected and then reelected by the majority of Americans. How can you tell me that the majority of Americans are racist when they specifically do something that is anti-racist? Mm -hmm. Like that mm -hmm. just like th those are the two like very stark differences where you have like the theory and the hysteria versus the reality and what's actually going on. And you can see the reaction being so disproportionate to what's mm -hmm. actually going on. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's just a, a question of like, you know, why or how and forth turning kind of gives you that possible perspective as to why it is that there is a uh, hysterical reaction or overreaction, mm -hmm. I guess you would say, to the these you know specific things. Mm -hmm. And he does point out in the election of uh, of Obama, he does point out that living in Tennessee, when Obama was elected, he did see like uh, an outbreak of of racism, right? And it was it was obvious. But he points out that it's not like that was the majority response, and it's. But it was examples like that that were upheld as, as the as the proof that that um, like American society was systemically racist at that time. And but they they weren't even using that kind of that language very very much at all. Ten, thirteen, fourteen years ago, mm -hmm. um, that language has only come about now because of Trump. Because everything this is the thing about about all these. Um, all these sparks, all these events, is that for critical race theory, every event proves their point. Um, their their ideology is such that any piece of evidence is can be and is used as proof that they are correct. There's no disconfirming evidence possible. Which is great about uh, as a criticism of it, where they criticize the fourth turning, or people will criticize the fourth turning as being something that cuts. Uh, data to fit its model and theory like I can't think of any better example than critical theory of something that completely mis like just distorts whatever data is presented in front of it in order for right, it to yeah. fit the theory so I'm just like how can like you know there's the two great examples of, of you know just the fourth turning in critical theory and mm -hmm. one clearly does something that they're accusing the fourth turning of way worse than the fourth turning but it's still given credence as if it can predict uh, mm. what's going on and why. Yeah, be, <laughs> and it does that because there's only ever one answer and there's only ever one racism. prediction, right? Yeah, <laughs> so racism, any interaction, uh, you know, like Lindsay likes to say, he quotes Robin DiAngelo, that it's not, did racism manifest in this situation? It's how did racism manifest in this situation? Every interaction, every... Every social interaction, every thought that you have, everything that everything that happens has an element of racism. It's built into the the structure of human reality. That's how that's how these people see racism. And so no matter what happens, there will be a way of interpreting it as an expression of racism. And of course, this is it on one level it works because a lot of people buy it. A lot of people believe it. On the other hand, it really undercuts their own position because it makes a, it trivializes actual, actual racism. Mm -hmm. It um, so when you're when you're looking at these at these benign events and interactions and calling them racist, then what it, it just seems to to. So when you say that there is a moral equivalence mm -hmm. between uh, somebody who is a cashier who helps a white person first as opposed to a black person mm -hmm. for whatever reason, when you say that that is racism and is morally equivalent to somebody who had gone out specifically found a, a, a black person and then beat them. Mm -hmm. If those are morally equivalent, like you say, it undercuts their position as to why racism well, is bad. And it's even worse than that because th this is the, ex when Lindsay brings that up, he uses the example of, you know, a black person and a white person coming into a store at the same time, maybe a coffee shop, 
And because there's racism in every situation, the the barista is trapped, right? So it's not mm-hmm. that it's not even that he picks the the white person yeah. first. If he picks the black person first, that's because he's got these internalized he's got this intern well, I don't even know the word. I don't I'm not He's trying to not appear racist. Right. But yeah, so he's got this internalized backwards racism or something because he because he sees the the black person as inferior in some way, he uses his kind of white knight um mentality to to pander to the to the black person and that's an expression of racism so it's racist whether he picks the white person or the black for black person first and so not only is there a, a moral equivalence between picking the white person first there's a moral <laughs> equivalence between choosing to serve the black person first and an act of actual like racist violence mm-hmm. so everything is racist so that's the kind of crazy times that we're living in um at a time of like of mass hysteria. Now this is what I wanted. This is the other cyclical theory that I wanted to get into because Lobachevsky talks about a similar, well, it's almost the exact same thing in, in Ponderology. He essentially describes those four stages that we, that we've been talking about. He uses slightly different terminology. He doesn't perfectly um, like delineate them into four consecutive, consecutive generations, but he talks about the, the cycle of good times and bad times. And in, how in good times people get complacent, it leads to stagnation. The and then in this period of of good times and stagnation, there is an increase in social hysteria. This is the element that um, that isn't explicit when you see summaries of of generational generation. I can, can never remember if it's generations or generational theory. Um, fourth turning. The, um, I haven't read the whole book, so I don't know if they talk about the about mass hysteria and how they fit fit that into their their model. But in Lobachevsky's, that in in after during and and during good times and during the stagnation, there's a period of mass hysteria of social hysteria, and then he says that about twenty five years after the peak of mass hysteria is when you'll see a uh, a crisis, and that. He gives two numbers. He gives 25 years after the peak and about 10 years after that peak has, has, uh, that peak of, has, of hysteria has declined. But now this is, this is going to, I'm going to start something else and then circle back to, to that point. When Lobachevsky wrote his book in 1984, well, he came to the States in the late 70s, I think like 78 or 79, maybe even 77. 78, I think. And during the 80s, um, he, he observes in his book that uh, coming from Eastern Europe and being thrown into American culture in the mid-80s, that, and not just him, but people like him who had come from, um, come from Europe and who were old enough to remember, um, like, so this would be like octogenarians, like old, like, old people that remembered what life was like in the first part of the, like in the early 1900s, that people from, from Europe recognized in America of the 1980s what Europe had gone through in the early 1900s, which Lobachevsky points out was the, was the last great peak of social hysteria, of mass hysteria in, uh, in European civilization. And this is when you saw, like, you saw an almost epidemic of what today would be called mass psychogenic illness or uh, or mass hysteria. You had the the actual um, epidemic of hysteria, which was back then um, it was kind of a, a diagnosis for a whole bunch of symptoms. Nowadays, we don't tend to use the the word hysteria clinically anymore. At least psychiatrists don't. They use like somatoform disorders and conversion disorders and uh, and things like that. But basically, there was a, a mass outbreak of mental illness that was that was uh, labeled as hysteria, and that's what Lobachevsky and others like him observed in the U.S. during the 1980s. And he said that that was he, it, in his professional opinion, that was like the peak of hysteria was in the 80s. And what was happening in the 80s? Well, you had the mass outbreak of bulimia and anorexia. You had the satanic panic. You had 
and these were just um, what you might call like clinical things going on, uh, multiple personality disorder. And that's in addition to the, the culture wars that, that broke out in the 80s and 90s. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on, um, mass hysteria-wise. And then when he got back to Poland, um, observing events from, from afar this time, by the, by the late 90s, he said, well, it looks like that, that peak of hysteria has passed. So by the late, by the late 90s, you know, that hysteria... Oh, and one other thing that was huge in the 80s was serial killers. Um, I've, after we watched the Richard Ramirez documentary, I think, um, also maybe the Ted Kaczynski one, um, I looked up the figures and there's a, there's a chart of American serial killers and it's like, it's pretty low. And then during the eighties, it's just like, Voof, and then nineties to now it, it drops off. Like there was a huge spike of serial killers in the 1980s, but yeah, just incidentally. And so things did seem to level off during the nineties. And so if the peak was like mid eighties, let's say even like late eighties, then well, just, just for easy math, let's say it was 1990, 20 years from 1990 was, well, just wait, 90 to 2000, 2000, or let's say 85. Yeah. Let's just, let's just say 85 when Lobachevsky was writing 15, 2010 is 20 years, 25 years from then. And 10 years after the, the pass of, of, uh, after the, the decline of socialist area, according to Lobachevsky's scheme here let's say 19 if you take 1998 when he was writing that about how about the decline in hysteria in, in american society 10 years from 1998 was 2008 the financial crisis basically it looks like from where i stand he's essentially seeing and describing the same things he's got a slightly different terminology and and way of measuring it because he thinks that the the hysterical cycle the hysteroidal cycle as he calls it was around 200 years around two centuries but I think that if there's any if there's any truth to the fourth turning theory, that Lobachevsky data, Lobachevsky's data might have just been um, when he was looking at whatever historical examples he was looking at, or and the people that he was following, because he some of his professors in in Poland at the time were big on to these cycles of history, um, and it could have just been that they they were looking at two cycles that uh, like a, a period of really great hysteria that led to a big crisis, and then maybe the second one a century later just got kind of lost because for whatever reason, those sparks didn't ignite into the, the same um, like turmoil that it did in the 200 years. It would be like looking at the, like, uh, well, um, I think that's, well, I guess, you, that. well, you could say uh, looking at a stock market example, you could have like a, a run up in a certain stock that goes up to like a hundred. Mm -hmm. You know, starting at ten dollars, and it goes up to a hundred, and then on the next, uh, I guess, like a bull run, it goes from yeah. uh, fifty to, or like thirty to eighty. Mm -hmm. So there's still a huge run up, but it's not quite as big. Yeah, yeah, and it could just be that, um, like Lobachevsky himself says elsewhere in his book, um, on the, in this section, he's talking about how societies can have and cultures can have different levels of resistance to these types of phenomena, so they can weather the storm. So um, so in, uh, from one cycle to the next, they might, a society might weather the, the, the fourth turning comparatively well compared to a hundred years later when they might just fall apart. So it's not like, again, it's not like it's a total repeat of history. It's certain trends and it's certain trends with certain characteristics that play themselves out depending on a whole lot of variables. So for example, in the, in the U S now, I might get some details here wrong just because I don't, I'm not, I don't know enough of the history, but if you look at the, the last crisis period of, in the United States, you had the Great Depression and World War II. The Great Depression was arguably a big crisis and World War II as well, but World War II didn't actually, was, was never actually fought on American soil. It was a foreign war except for Pearl Harbor. So American society basically did survive you know, it's not like American society fell apart like Russian society fell apart during the Russian Revolution, um, but it and and but America was able to 
uh, the United States was able to kind of rebuild in the 50s and create, um, you know, the, the, create good times, essentially, you know, like the 50s and, and create the, essentially rule the world for the next 70 years. Well, it was like they had a, uh, they got to have the crisis by proxy yeah. almost because they didn't, like you said, uh, it wasn't fought on American soil. It was fought over in Europe uh, and on Russian soil to a large extent. Uh, so they were able to, uh, I guess, have exposure to the crisis and all of the things that led up to the crisis and all of the bad things about you know what had led up to it, um, while also maintaining their their distance to be able to examine what was wrong and build something stronger uh, to withstand that, mm-hmm. and and so thereby have its own kind of revitalization and crisis without uh, the disastrous effects of the crisis. Mm-hmm. So, according to these schemes, these uh, frameworks for for looking at history, Strauss and Howe, William Strauss and Neil Howe, I think those are their names, predicted that the fourth turning would start around 2008, 2007, 2008, and that's when the financial crisis happened. And then predicted that it would, uh, nowadays, I th- one of, only one of them is alive now. I think Strauss, Stry- Strauss is the one that's still alive. And he, he predicts that the, this fourth turning of the crisis period will end in around 2028, 2028, 2030, something around there. So all these events that are happening in this current time have the potential to essentially destroy uh, civilization, <laughs> destroy society, in, you know, to, to a greater or lesser degree. And the thing about these cycles is that they are they can and are synchronized between various countries. So it looks like the entire Western world is shares the same cycle. And so what what happens in one country could affect others, and different things could happen in different countries. But it kind of it's all gonna blow up to some degree. So that's well. With that in mind. Um, Looking at it in terms of what Lindsay brings up in his Rise of the, the, the Woke Cultural Revolution article is you can make some predictions based on these trends. Um, just like the, the rise of critical theory in education and, and in academia in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s has created this climate today where it arguably influences every aspect of Western society from education from kindergarten to to graduation and PH and getting your PhD to the media to every corporation every corporate environment every business environment churches um, government it's basically followed the the outline of uh, Gramsci's revolutionary theory which was to basically artificially infect all of these institutions, law, education, religion, I can't remember all six of them, but to insinuate yourself and your revolutionary movement and your ideology into all of these institutions. And that, it's a a new form of revolution. That's actually one of the other things that I, I wanted to get to, is one of the ways that these crises manifest is through revolutions. And there are different types but there are different types of revolution like the russian revolution was a revolution from below a revolutionary movement um, a group of hardcore activists that get enough popular support that they are able to tear down the existing um, power structure and replace it with one of their own so the bolsheviks were able to do that in the late teens and early 20s there's also a revolution from above. This is when power changes <clears throat> power changes hands through revolutionary means, not through the people, but through, um, let's say, a faction or someone within the existing power structure. So it doesn't require a doesn't require a revolutionary movement from below. It might be motivated by a, uh, a revolution from below, or even in reaction to a revolution from below. Um, but the there's at least some continuity, some, how to put it, uh, 
observable continuity in like the the structure of government and it can be very um it can be very secretive behind the scenes like conspiratorial like it it can happen without you really noticing it a revolution from above um and what we see actually what we see playing out in the United States these days in the last uh in the last several years can arguably be called a revolution from above that's what uh Gordon Hahn is observing as well as uh, Angelo Codevilla. That seems to be what's playing itself out. That's actually what happened in in Russia in the 90s too, which is another story. Uh, Gordon Hahn writes about that in one of his books. But you've also now this is a, another kind of revolution. What seems to be going on is like it's a combination of revolution from below and revolution from above, where when the revolution takes place, it's not it's not necessarily that that this group of um, revolution, these group of revolutionaries that form a, a section of, of Western society will like rise up and take power from the existing power structure. The way it's playing itself out is that it has been a revolution, um, through the institutions. I'll lay out some of the things that, that have been happening. There has been a revolution through the institutions, the, the infiltration and the, like the influence, um, and infection of of institutions by activists that to the point where they're now in control of these institutions or at least they have vast uh like huge amounts of control and influence so that's what they've done in churches and in education and in law and in politics too so you so the the combination is that the same process is going on within the existing government power structure to the point where the, where people in power can just declare themselves to be on the side of the revolution and no violent revolution seems to have happened. It's just, oh, well, you know, we're now, we're now in power. It's kind of, and you could say something kind of similar happened with, um, not exactly, but something similar happened with the, the Nazi revolution um, because the Hitler got in power through democratic means, but at the same time it was a revolution. It's not like, it's not like Hitler and the Nazis tore down the existing, like, you know, violently invaded and tore down the existing German uh, government or power structure, they got in as a political party. And so there's an element of that too. It's kind of like we see elements of all these different types of revolutions happening um, happening in these last few years. And I've got to sneeze. <laughs> well, I'll just say that... Um... That was exactly what I was thinking about as you were uh, kind of laying out the, the two different examples was that it is both because, the, I mean, uh, coming from like the corporate example where as an, uh, Lego just came out with their, their new everyone is awesome. Uh, I, I don't even know if it's a line of things or if it's just like one particular like object or uh, set you know, Lego set where, you know, it's a uh, non-gender conformist. I, I can't even think of the, the jargon to use to describe it. Um, but it's just like a rainbow of Lego characters. And uh, so that's coming from the corporate side. There's also the infection of the uh, Southern Baptist convention with uh, article or resolution nine, I think is what it's called where they, talk about how uh, they want to start proclaiming uh, critical theory and critical race theory uh, as part of its doctrine uh, in order to lead people to Christ in, in some kind of weird way that doesn't make any kind of sense. And also there's the uh, infection in politics with uh, uh, Biden and his administration being all about uh, equity Um so there, so there is this infection from the top, and there's there's not been a revolution, but there has been, in a mm -hmm. sense, because where under Trump there was there was uh, the infection was still ongoing, but there was a a power structure that, or a power base uh, that had uh, you know grassroots grassroots support. Uh, coming, you know, towards Trump and Trump also, you know, kind of helping people that supported him in uh, pushing back against it. Whereas, you know, through quote unquote 
democratic means, end quote. Fortified uh, democracy. <laughs> fortified democracy. Uh, now we have uh, Joe Biden and, you know, his group of, uh, you know, woke people uh, trying to push all of these things uh, from the top. And, and then at the same time, too, because of uh, George Floyd, St. George Floyd, may he rest in peace. Um, you have all of the, the riots and, and whatnot uh, continuing to, to move forward. And so there, there is both. And it's, it's, that's one thing that I've been wondering about is like, how far will, will it go? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. will, is there going to be a violent revolution or is, is it just going to, are are the people at the top going to continue to just kind of like placate and play the role? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's why it's hard to predict. But it, um, that's an issue. Yeah, that's one of those issues that we've talked about several times on the show and that comes up in the, in the guests that we interview and the books that we read. Like it's, it's essentially the way I've phrased it is the question of, is the future going to be Brave New World or 1984? And as a, I use that as kind of like a symbol for a number of different things, not just the form that the government takes, like uh, 1984, uh, a totally brutal um, system and government to live under. It's kind of like Stalinism times a thousand, or is it like Brave New World where everyone is convinced that they're happy and content and there's no real need for... Um, for force or, or violence, everyone just complies willingly and meekly. Um, how is it going to play out? So that's, you see that question in, well, there's, that also relates to how's the revolution going to play out? Is it going to be this, this nice, cozy, fun um, revolution with, without making any real waves like we've been seeing? Or is there going to be like, uh, or, can, or will there be something like a civil war? That's a question. And Rod Dreher talked about this in, in his book, in Live Not By Lies, when he, he kind of, if I remember correctly, he kind of predicts in the book that totalitarianism in, in the Western world will be soft totalitarianism. It won't, it won't achieve the, like the levels of brutality that, for instance, communism did in most of the countries that it took root in in the 20th century, or like Nazi Germany that it will kind of it will kind of resemble Brave New World more than 1984. <clears throat> but that just reminded me of of something um, that I wanted to to add in there. I talked about how Lobachevsky talks talked about in the 80s how he and like the older generation were seeing the similarities between um, between American culture and and what was going on and what was going on in Europe in the early 1900s before the outbreaks outbreak of revolution and world war and so that was in the 80s 30 something years ago and there's a similar observation but uh this one's from Zbigniew Janowski's Janowski's book came out this year Homo Americanus the rise of totalitarian democracy in America I just want to read the first couple sentences because things have kind of changed he writes only few Americans seem to understand that we, here in the United States, are living in a totalitarian reality, or one that is very or one that is quickly approaching it. Any visitor from a country formerly behind the totalitarian Iron Curtain quickly notices that the lack of freedom in today's America is, in many respects, greater than what he had experienced under socialism. The other thing that our visitor notices is that 30 years after Eastern European countries shook off the yoke of communism, the former socialist countries are in some respects freer than the U.S. It goes on and goes on. Now, this is also an observation that um, it's, it's basically how Rod Dreher introduces his book, Live Not by Lies, is that he was hearing the exact same thing from some of his Eastern European friends that were saying that like, in these last five to ten years, they're saying this is exactly like what we experienced under communism. So put those two together. You have East, uh, a group of Eastern Europeans in the 80s saying, oh, this is just like what we experienced before the rise of communism versus these last five years 
you guys, you know, the, we, we lived through this. This is what's going on. So that see, that seems to, that's a hint to me that this process is already far along and that, um, like he, like he puts it, it's already totalitarian to a degree, or at the very least it is quickly approaching that level. And, uh, another poll, uh, Richard Legutko makes the same observation in his book, Demon and Democracy. And they're not the only ones. Um, there seems, there is something, something weird going on and, and it is identifiable. Like it can be traced. James Lindsay traces, traces it from a, a certain angle and sees certain things. These, the polls see it, um, in, I wouldn't say a different way. Well, slightly in, in some ways a different way, but they're kind of tracing it back like like Yanovsky here tracing tracing it back to the actual flaws in the in the philosophy and practice of like liberal democracy itself and how those weaknesses have have led to how it is manifesting today Lindsay is more focused on this kind of caricature of of liberal democratic thought which is critical theory which comes out of neo-marxism well is neo-marxism but nowadays it's a uh, like wokeness is a, this amalgamation of postmodernism and uh, critical studies. So you can trace these specific, uh, the specific genealogy of, of these philosophies. But what we, the, the reality on the ground is that there has been a, in essence, a cultural revolution in Western society through education and youth and the, and, uh, academics in the media and etc one one institutions we forgot to mention was the military um just well yeah military same thing going on there so so yeah that's what we have to look forward to is uh well we're already so far along in this process it seems um that for me it's just a matter of uh, kind of just watching, yeah. Kind of like it's it's kind of like a movie that you just gotta watch play out and then uh, play ro- whatever role, um, you know, you have to when it gets to that point and see what happens. Yeah, that's. Uh, I agree. From where I'm sitting, uh, it does seem like we're fairly far along in the process. Well, I mean, it's an interesting, uh, you know, like we were talking about where. Uh, in the 80s, there was uh, the older generation saying like, hey, we've been through this in terms of like all of the lead up mm-hmm. to the revolution. And now the difference is they're like, this is the revolution. Like the revolution's already happened. Yeah. So it's uh, <coughs> it's scary in that sense that it's like it's already here. Mm-hmm. It's already now. In some sense, it's already too well. We'll we'll say that it, it's not too late to uh, to stop it from going full Nazi, for lack of a better word, uh, or full uh, Brave New World. But it's too far along to stop it from creating a lot of mayhem and a lot of suffering, unfortunately. Uh, and so, like you said, the the best thing that we can do is uh, observe, watch, wait, play whatever role comes before you, you know, and uh, deal with what comes to just see the thing through to the end and uh, hope that, uh, you know, not only are you able to um, survive, but to not get crushed in a spiritual sense. Uh, along the way too because that's another another aspect to it and then it's almost a silver lining in a in a certain respect because you know the the hard times create good men mm-hmm. aspect of it and I, i'll go back to earth rule for a second and um <laughs> So going back to Erterul and Ibn Arabi having his discussion with Erterul about how the uh, the sword isn't uh, forged by you know 
gentle massages and loving caresses. It has to be hammered and it has to be thrown into the fire and it has to be hammered again and then thrown back into the fire. And uh, it's through that process of, of struggle and strife that uh, something good within you can, can be forged and is stronger because of it. So, yeah, in a sense, this is a bit of a silver lining because, you know, you can be so much stronger than you ever would have been if you didn't have to face these things, because it's one of the aspects of, of life that, um, you know, is, is unavoidable. Like uh, objective reality is unavoidable in certain senses and you can get pretty far in your own growth as a human being, uh, just, you know, of your own volition. But when you, Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll use an example here where if you want to be the best runner that you can be, like you can train hard and you can do a lot of things and you'll, and you'll get pretty far. But if you have an, a driver of that motivation where there's somebody trying to, you know, run faster than you in a, yeah, competition, in a competition, in a race, yeah. well then you just have to try that much harder because you can't control that person and you don't know how hard they're going to work. So then you have to work harder than that guy. Or it's like in martial arts, if you're, if you're training by yourself mm -hmm. and only by yourself, then you get thrown in a sparring match. It's, it's like you realize you don't, know, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You actually have to spar in order to, mm -hmm. to advance in your skills and your ability. Yeah. It's not like you're trying to be better than yourself. Mm -hmm. You're trying to be better than the next guy that's going to kick your ass if you're not better than him. Yeah. <laughs> Which at the same time is you're, you're trying to be better than yourself. You're, you're always trying to be better than, your, than yourself, but without an external situation in order to actually test that out with, mm -hmm. you know, with an external reality, then... Um, you don't really know yeah. how. Yeah. How strong you are. Yeah. Okay. I think that's good. We'll end it there. So we'll, we'll give links to the books that we've, we've discussed today in the show description. So uh, check them out because... One of the things that Lobachevsky says is just being aware of what's happening, like the specifics of what's happening, and we haven't even you know touched the surface of all the dynamics going on, that's why I recommend reading his book, but just knowing these dynamics has the effect of, it's almost like a, a, real, a real vaccine, a psychological vaccine that immunizes you against the effects of it. And one example he gives is that in the, in the period of high Stalinism in Poland, in the late 40s, early 50s, um, as a, as a psychologist, he noticed, um, like what he described as psychophysiological shock symptoms, um, essentially like these traumatic responses to the imposition of this new form of government and that these symptoms, uh, some antidepressants of the time worked on these symptoms and helped people essentially survive and got through this, this dark new reality. But after 10, 15 years, um, They'd even forgotten, like, that they that they needed those antidepressants back then because they'd they'd learned to uh, adapt to the situation, and how to navigate it. Because once they have, well, that was that's just adaptation. Um, it's kind of like a naturally acquired immunity. But to actually have the the understanding of what's going on, to actually be able to see what's going on, is that effect? It's kind of like that effect, um, an order of magnitude greater or exponentially greater. So, well, I guess in that respect, then it's, uh, uh, you know, if you're walking through a forest and you don't know where you are and you're lost, mm -hmm. you freak out because yeah. you're lost in the woods and you don't know where you're going. Yeah. But if you had a handy roadmap that you were studying exactly. beforehand and you knew where you were going up, even at least an approximation mm -hmm. and how to, I think more importantly, how to get out, yeah. uh, or at least like deal with it if you're stuck there for a while, like if you have some survival training, mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to freak out because you right. know, you know what you're dealing with and you know how to deal with it. Right. So I think in a very similar way that that's, you know, what this stuff is good for. Yeah. And that's the premise of, uh, Peterson's maps of meaning, right? Is that in an, in an encounter with chaos, it is a, dis it is disintegrative and it, it is chaotic because it is unknown. Mm -hmm. But once you have a map a map of meaning, once you're able to map that reality and, uh, you know, place it within a, a framework where it's understandable, 
it loses the element of chaos and uh, and it becomes navigable. It becomes something in which you can maneuver and in which you can uh, survive. So, yeah. So I hope uh, I hope some people get their get their truth vaccines. Uh, <laughs> I hear they're quite effective. So, thanks everyone. Take care, and we'll see you later. <laughs>